from Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sin, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And the voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you... I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Joan Osborne's 1996 Kyrie, What If God Was One of Us, asks, perhaps inadvertently, perhaps maybe the question comes through even though we use 1970s technology to tell it. (laughs) The central question of our time. What if God were one of us? What if? Central question facing us as Christians is not how do I get to heaven? Recognize that there might be some people thinking that's our charity. But that is not Scripture's concern. How do we get to heaven? That's that's pretty straightforward. The real issue that Scripture puts before us is who is Jesus Christ for you today? You don't answer that question, you don't know nothing. We can have great systems of theology and all kinds of intricacies worked out about all sorts of things. But if you can't handle the question, who is Jesus Christ for you today? You have indulged in a great adventure in missing the point. The whole narrative of Scripture draws us again and again, inexorably, to that central question. What are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? And so, one of the things we're going to do is explore the Gospel of Mark together. Now, because I like to plan ahead, being a a Jay in the Myers-Briggs, an Uber Jay in the Myers-Briggs, I like to plan ahead. So, big chunks of the next three summers are going to be taken up with the Gospel of Mark. And everybody says, yeah! 
Okay, maybe not, but that's what's going to happen. <clears throat> this summer, between now and mid-October, and it probably will still feel like summer in mid-October, we'll be looking at that part of, John, of Mark's Gospel that deals from John's ministry until John's death and why those are important capstones in the narrative about Jesus. Following summer from the feeding of the 5,000 to the healing of blind Bartimaeus. And finally in the summer of 16, from the triumphal entry to the troubled ending of Mark's Gospel. Now, you're probably saying, well, okay, isn't that special? <laughs> why Mark why are we bothering with this well I have three reasons and they even alliterate first the centrality of Christology for our time who Jesus is for us isn't just the question throughout the history of Christianity it's our question today church in the West has become a great instrument for marketing, for political organizing, for publishing books. I'm not always sure how much we really pay attention in the Western church to Jesus, to Christology, to what we believe about Jesus and why he matters. We've got an issue du jour. All, every one of us in this room has our pet issues that we want to deal with and we want everybody to conform. And the point of the New Testament is that none of those issues really matter unless you're paying attention to who Jesus is. And that has become for us as a church in North America, in Europe, in the Western world, central question for our time, who is Jesus? But flowing from that is also the consequences of the cross for our lives because the Jesus story can't be told without talking about the cross. We'd, we'd like to. We'd, we'd like to make Jesus a cuddly little baby at Christmas and, and a warm, fuzzy, resurrected, I don't know, heavenly bunny at Easter. It's just that ugly Good Friday thing. That cross. We don't quite know what to do with that. It's so icky. And yet, it is central to the story. And the consequences of that piece of the story for our lives is one of the reasons why we want to look at Mark's Gospel. And then the call, thirdly, of the Gospel for our purpose. We in the West, we're big on purpose statements. Hey, when I did my MBA, uh, Stephen Covey was big, seven habits of highly effective people, personal mission statement, woohoo. Where is the gospel 
in that? How, how do we live out the gospel's purposes for our lives? Not just have God bless our purposes. I don't think God's in the business of sprinkling holy fairy dust on our purposes. I want to be bold enough to suggest that God has purpose for our lives and that that purpose is discoverable as we live in community with each other and with His Spirit. And so, the call of the Gospel on our personal mission statements It's an essential part of the conversation. And so during common time over the next three summers, we want to unpack the Gospel of Mark from beginning to end. Because this Gospel is central. Because this is our narrative in a landscape that denies shared narratives. In a world that says to us, there is no common story. There is no narrative that shapes all of our lives. There's only your individual stories and that's all that matters. Mark's gospel is a counterweight to that. and says, no, there's a story we all share. There's a narrative we all embrace. It's our story in a world where stories do not always have happy endings. And Mark's gospel ends in a funny, funky kind of way. It's not the happiest ending of the four Gospels. And it reminds us that our Christian experience, like the experience of the disciples of Jesus' time, will be full of ambiguity and questions and struggle. And God is in the midst of that. And it's our authority in a world that seeks to strip authority away. We don't much like to talk about authority. We want to be free moral agents. We want to be independent. And so having conversations about authority is a little little tricky for us, postmodern Westerners, because it's my life. I'll do what I want to do, thank you very much. And yet, Mark's Gospel reminds us that Jesus lays a claim on our lives. And He invites us into a way that He will lead. And He invites us to be followers of His way. Mark's Gospel opens with news of great victory. In fact, Mark's gospel opens as straight-ahead revolutionary treason. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah is the most revolutionary sentence in the Bible. To use the word good news, euangelion, was to steal from Caesar's political lexicon. Only the Roman emperor was allowed to use the word euangelion. It was a political word to describe a great victory. And since the days of Caesar Augustus, only the Roman emperor was entitled to use that word to describe his great triumphs. 
in politics, in battle, in statesmanship. And Mark just casually, offhandedly almost, opens the whole story with a word that a Jewish carpenter had absolutely no business using. The beginning of the victory about Jesus, the Messiah. But if that wasn't treasonous enough, Mark describes Jesus as Messiah, as Christos, the King. Mark doesn't just assert that Jesus was a nice guy who happened to be a thoughtful teacher who, who said good things and taught us a bunch of nice aphorisms about how to be good to each other. It's a little deeper than that. Jesus, Mark says, is king. Now, I, I may be wrong about this. My political science could be a little rusty, but it, it does occur to me that a kingdom can only have one king at a time. And the king that everybody acknowledged in the first century in the Mediterranean world was the Roman emperor. And Mark, in the middle of all of that, says, uh, not Caesar, but Jesus is Christos. King, Lord, the guy in charge, the head cheese. Got to admit, this is beginning to stack up to be pretty revolutionary stuff. And in the NIV, there's, there's even a phrase missing. Uh, the Greek talks about Jesus uh, Christus Theus, or God's Son, Jesus the Messiah, God's Son. Again, a title only reserved to Caesar. The emperors and pharaohs and potentates of the ancient world all claimed to be sons of the gods, to be in direct line, lineage of the divine. Mark claims that for Jesus. Unlike Matthew, he doesn't try to explain it genealogically. Unlike Luke, he doesn't try to explain it historically. Unlike John, he doesn't try to explain it theologically. He just asserts it. And so you have in verse 1 of Mark's Gospel, the most revolutionary, the most treasonous, the most politically incorrect statement that could be made in the first century. An obscure carpenter from Nazareth in Galilee is the challenge to the emperor. Mark begins this gospel and there is no doubt where his loyalties stand. He's not trying to build a case. He's not trying to hook you into his argument. 
He's simply laying it out there and saying, you got to take Jesus pretty seriously. Now, in verses 2 and 3, he reminds his readers, most of whom were Jewish, that this is not new stuff. That, that the prophets promised this kind of Messiah. Now, let's just stipulate that Mark's not the greatest biblical scholar to ever put pen to parchment and get quoted in the New Testament. Because he says this is from Isaiah the prophet. Well, he's half right. There are actually two verses in verses 2 and 3 of Mark 1. The first, uh, I will send my messenger ahead of you, is from Malachi. It's from Malachi chapter 3. And that's an important use for Mark because it was the Jewish worldview that Malachi was the last of the prophets. God, Yahweh, stopped speaking to his people in a certain way with Malachi. That was the end of the story in some ways. They continued to worship God, but, but the kind of intimate relationship that the prophets had, that, had, that had come to an end. And they waited for a Messiah who would reestablish that intimacy with God. And Mark says, Jesus, the guy who's taking on Caesar, that's him. The guy promised in Malachi, when God stopped talking, and said, somebody's coming, a messenger is coming, my word will be returned to you. This is him. And then he quotes from Isaiah 40, from that great chapter that's full of hope. The first half of Isaiah, chapters 1 through 39, is about how Israel had brought judgment on themselves. And then Isaiah pivots in chapter 40, and opens with the words, comfort, comfort to you, my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, for her days of bondage are over. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Mark deliberately uses this passage in Isaiah 40 to remind people of the Messiah's mission. That the Messiah was coming not to judge, not to condemn, not to destroy, but to redeem. This Messiah was coming to reestablish God's loving, redemptive relationships with His people. With all who would say yes to Him. Mark is signaling important things in the beginning of this gospel. And it culminates in verses 4 through 8 with the introduction of this character, John the Baptizer, John the Baptist. He appears in the wilderness. Now, there's a whole backstory in Luke and John and Matthew about John the Baptist. Not in Mark. Mark doesn't have time for the backstory. It's just. Yeah, this guy appears. He just shows up. Okay? Just, just go with the flow of the story, okay? And he says, John the Baptist appears in the wilderness. Well, why is that important? Because that's where Yahweh appears to his people. God appears to Moses as a burning bush. 
in the wilderness. He appears to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. He gives them the law a second time through Moses as they stand on the other side of the Jordan ready to go in and calls them into a covenant relationship. God speaks to Elijah in the wilderness when Elijah is exhausted after taking on Ahab. Time and time and time again, God speaks to his people in the wilderness. And so it's no surprise to the Jewish ears listening to this gospel for the first time. Of course, John the Baptist shows up in the wilderness. Where else would he show up? That's how God works. God speaks to us in those strange spaces. Spaces where we're where we don't always inhabit, where we don't always go easily or readily. And John the Baptist preaches a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Now, 20 centuries of Christian doctrine says, well, of course he does. Sure. But for the first century Jew, baptism, the the whole body wash of Judaism, happened only for Gentiles who were converting to Judaism. So here's what John the Baptist is up to. He is going to Jewish people saying, you need to convert. You need to come home to the religion Yahweh gave us. You need to come back and live out this faith again. And again, in the other Gospels, John's message is explained much more in terms of doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly with God. But here in Mark, again, it's, it's, it's compact and encoded that what you need to do is convert. Now, these are the people of God. These are Abraham's children. These are, these, you know, the, the, they, they, they keep Sabbath and they eat kosher and the guys have been circumcised. What more do you want? And John says, yeah, God wants it all. And so go through the ritual of converting to the faith you grew up in. And so he preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And people were responding. The whole Judean countryside and all of Jerusalem. And they confessed their sins and were baptized by him. And John is dressed like Elijah the prophet, the greatest of the prophets, the most powerful and potent of the prophets, Elijah. Everything John is doing and everything Mark is telling us about John is signaling continuity with everything God has been up to. God's been planning this redemptive act for a long, long time. God is not flying by the seat of his pants here with Jesus. There is a plan unfolding. And Mark ends this conversation about John with 
John's own recognition that he's just part of the plan. That God is at work in him to bear witness to he who is greater. I baptize you with water. I I simply remind you of your covenant. John the Baptist says, but one is coming who will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Who will give you more than just this covenant, but a new covenant. Covenant for all people, for all time, everywhere. And it's at that point that the story shifts. In verse 9, we're introduced to Jesus. Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. Oh boy, is there a whole lot of backstory there that again, Mark doesn't give us. He just says, come on people, you, you, you know this already. Let's cut to the chase. And he was baptized by John in the Jordan. He accepts his place in time and space. Jesus' baptism is an admission of the incarnation. Because God isn't just coming in some amorphous spiritual ooze out there somewhere. He's coming in flesh and dwelling among us. And so Jesus steps into the waters of the Jordan. And we can debate about how wet he got, whether he poured water on him or whether they dunked him three times forward kneeling like you're supposed to in the Brethren in Christ Church or whatever. But he said... I agree with this. I too am part of this space and time. I'm among these people. And lo and behold, with that, God speaks again. In the Jewish mind, God has been silent for 400 years since the prophet Malachi. And now we read the heavens are torn open in an an act of passion, in an act of, 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 divine energy it's like god couldn't wait he he rips open the present and he says this is my beloved son do what he says this is the guy follow him you are my son i love you i am well pleased with you god puts his mark on jesus now You would think that at that point in the story, everybody comes streaming out of the cities and towns and villages and they just bow at Jesus' feet and say, okay, whatever you want, Jesus, we're on board. But that's not not the story Mark tells. Instead, the story Mark tells is almost like that whole movement gets shut down at that point. And Jesus hightails it out. Where? To the wilderness. And he spends 40 days there. Hmm, 40. Like 40 years for the people of God coming from Egypt to the promised land. And Jesus is tested there. And again, we've got a larger backstory in Luke's gospel about this. But Mark has his own interesting wrinkle. We read at the end of this passage, being tempted by Satan, he was with the wild animals and the angels attended him. Jesus didn't just, you know, go off to Howard Johnson's in the desert and 
wait there by the pool for God to give him another epiphany. Jesus is living by his wits on the edge, literally in danger for these 40 days in the wilderness. He was with the wild animals is is Hebrew code for "Mm, things are dicey. There's danger all around him. Maybe not lions and tigers and bears, oh my, but scorpions and snakes and spiders and heat and cold and deprivation and jackals. Jesus didn't sleep well these 40 days and 40 nights. He slept with one eye open by a campfire that he had to constantly tend. It was a dangerous time for Jesus. And the angels, God's messengers, attended him. Because God had announced and broken back into history. You're my son. You're the one I've chosen. I'm pleased with you. God's on a mission not to judge us, but to redeem us, to fix that which we've broken. And so what is for us the victory news? Well, let me suggest four things for us. First of all, the victory news is that redemption is not an afterthought. God has been at work on our rescue from brokenness for a long, long time. God of the universe the one who flung the stars into their orbits, the one who created everything that has been created, has planned for your rescue and for mine with the same meticulous nature of a God who created everything else. God made it. We broke it. And God's in the mission to repair it. That's the story of the Bible in a nutshell. God's mission to repair our brokenness is not an afterthought or a seat-of-the-pants maneuver. God is deeply involved for a long time in our redemption. that means for us that we have to make a choice. Do we believe that or not? Do we believe that God really loves us that much? Or is this whole notion of God just sort of an emotional crutch that we use to get through the tough times? That's the choice. That's what Mark lays out for us. Are you willing to believe that the God of the universe cares enough about you to have been at work on your redemption from time immemorial? Secondly, redemption comes from the wilderness, from the unexpected place where God meets us. We all have wilderness places in our lives. 
They, they may not be physical deserts, but we all have wilderness places. Places where we feel alone, abandoned, forsaken, dry. We all have images and metaphors that we use to describe that experience. Well, that's where God is. Waiting for us. Waiting to redeem us. Waiting to walk with us. Waiting to tear the heavens open and say, I love you. Just like I love Jesus. Because I sent him to redeem you. That means you and I probably have to go to the wilderness every so often, doesn't it? We have to not be afraid of the wilderness, even though it's a dangerous place. We have to be willing to go there and encounter the God who will redeem us there. Because that's the third point of the victory news. God still speaks. God didn't seal heaven shut when Malachi's prophetic career came to an end. God reopened the conversation. He reopens it through Jesus. He reopens it through His church. God still speaks. He spoke to Jesus and He speaks to us. God is not silent. Even though there are times we have an incredibly difficult time hearing Him. And all of us have been there. I've been there. Where hearing God's voice seems next to impossible. But if Mark's Gospel has a kernel of truth to it, it is that God desires to open a conversation with us. That God desires to speak with us. And fourthly, perhaps the most difficult of these, after God speaks comes the hard part. We would like God speaking to us to end with comfort and blessing and soft cushions and, you know, a free subscription to Netflix or, you know, whatever. Whatever our creature comforts are, that's what we're looking for. Isn't, isn't, isn't that God's mission to make us feel comfortable? No. His mission is to redeem us. And after that conversation opens, comes the hard part, comes the testing part. Following Christ is not easy. It requires from us. It demands from us. It expects from us. Following Christ isn't for the faint-hearted. Third verse of the great hymn, Amazing Grace, says it best, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. It's not, and grace made me feel comfortable and gave me the desires of my heart. It's that grace kept me safe in the midst of those dangers, toils, and snares. We, 
We are on a journey, but we are on a journey in the midst of occupied territory. We are on a journey through a land where there are enemies all around us. We are on a journey where people and things conspire for us not to succeed in reaching our destination. Through many dangers, toils and snares, we have already come. But it's God's grace that's brought us safe thus far and God's grace that brings us home. Testing is yet to come. So this morning, some questions for your reflection. And one of my favorite quotes, next slide. One of my favorite quotes from that great theologian Mark Twain. It ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. (laughs) And so this morning, some questions for your reflection. What is God's victory news in your life? What is the good news for you? What is God's good news in your life? Where is the wilderness in which you meet God? And when was the last time you visited that place? What difference might it make in your life if you were convinced that God still spoke and that he had something to say to you? What dangers lie ahead for you? One more thing. Timothy Geddert, in his commentary on Mark, writes the following. That for me is a couple of paragraphs that guide my reading and reflection on Mark's gospel. Mark's message is that no glorious messiahship or wonder-working divine sonship is possible except by the way of the cross. Jesus' followers do not seek a life of ease and earthly glory. They seek to follow faithfully the one who has promised that true glory is found on the other side of the cross. Seldom has this emphasis been more sorely needed than in a pampered Western society where even Christians often expect that social, political, and economic systems as well as the gospel of Jesus Christ will foster our self-indulgence and guarantee success in our pursuit of happiness. Mark's gospel promises great rewards, but they are rewards for taking seriously the way of the cross. The victory news, the euangelion, the the amazingly treasonous thing that Mark writes, that Jesus is the King and the Son of God, is not a truth that creates for us padded luxury. It is a truth that takes us on a journey toward the cross. How is God speaking to you this morning? What is the victory news for your life? Where is the wilderness for you? 
What difference does it make that God might be speaking to you? What dangers lie ahead? 